Why are garbage incinerators such a bad deal for communities? In this episode of Local Energy Rules, John Farrell, Director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance's Energy Democracy Initiative, is joined by me, Marie Donahue, and Neil Seldman, co-founder of ILSR and director of the Waste to Wealth Initiative, to discuss why designating garbage burning as a renewable energy resource is so problematic. The three sat down for a recent episode of the Institute's Building Local Power podcast, which we have reproduced here to highlight the harmful impacts of burning trash to generate electricity, and what steps cities like Baltimore are taking to shut down these dirty facilities and build a healthier local clean energy future. This is the latest episode of Local Energy Rules, a podcast sharing powerful stories about local renewable energy. I'm John Farrell, co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. With me this week are Marie Donahue, ILSR researcher and author of Waste Incineration, A Dirty Secret in How States Define Renewable Energy. Welcome, Marie. Thanks for having me, John. Also with me is Neil Seldman, ILSR co-founder, director of our Waste to Wealth initiative, and the death knell to dozens of garbage incinerators across the country. Welcome, Neil. Uh, Pleasure to be here with both uh, you and Marie. Today, I'm excited to talk to the two of you about how communities can save money, have healthier kids, and create more jobs by shutting down garbage incinerators. And I'd like to start with something very recent. Neil, I was hoping you could explain how a recent city council decision in Baltimore will impact the wheelbarator incinerator that's responsible for so much of the city's industrial pollution. About uh, two weeks ago, uh, the city council voted unanimously 14 to 0 with one uh, absent person, one city council member absent who would have voted for the uh, act as well. But the Baltimore Clean Air Act sets new standards for uh, both burning garbage and burning uh, hospital and hazardous waste in the city of Baltimore. Um, it requires uh, that the both incinerators meet the state-of-the-art uh, best practices in pollution control equipment. Uh, it requires uh, constant monitoring coming out of the incinerator, uh, which is uh, technologically possible, and it also uh, requires uh, that the information on the constant monitoring constant monitoring uh, be made uh, public on a web page, as is being done in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, just to the south of Baltimore, Maryland. Um, the, um, uh, the, the situation in Baltimore um, is slightly different from Montgomery County, which we can get into. But in Baltimore, the Wheelabrator Company owns a facility called Bresco, B-R-E-S-C-O. Um, and that facility is about 35 to 40 years old. The city sends mo- uh, its non-recycled waste to that incinerator in downtown uh, Baltimore. Um, it, most of the uh, materials generated in Baltimore go there because the city has a very low recycling rate uh, estimated between 14 and 19 percent. By comparison, the national average is 34, and of course some cities are at 50, 60, and 70 percent. Um, so if the city uh, stopped sending its garbage there, uh, in theory, uh, because it's a privately owned facility, that facility can import garbage from anywhere they want to, Baltimore County, New York City, uh, to fill in for the garbage that is not delivered by the city. However, uh, with the passage of this uh, uh, law, um, it is not signed yet. Uh, uh, Mayor Pugh has uh, said she was going to sign it. It has not happened yet. It will become law if she doesn't sign it in about five or six days. Uh, it will become law. 
the importance uh, of the law, it will require any facility, private or public, uh, to meet these uh, new standards. Um, and um, it will therefore prevent the uh, incinerator from continuing uh, to operate um, with private sector trash or public trash if it does not uh, make the adjustments to pollution control uh, that will um, allow it to meet best available uh, control technology. Um, Vice President of the Wheelabrator Corporation already mentioned that if this law came to pass, uh, they will probably, uh, actually he said certainly, have to uh, shut the incinerator because the cost of putting on new pollution control equipment is about $70 million, and that p pollution control equipment will uh, require about $11 million a year of operating expenses. Uh, these expenses uh, for the corporation are just too much for it to uh, continue uh, operating this plant. Um, in theory, it could knock down the plant and build another, uh, a, a more modern plant, uh, but that is highly unlikely. The legislation can be used in at least 11 other states, according to Mike Ewall, who, who wrote the, uh, the, the, uh, the bill. Uh, he works for the Energy Justice Network, and um, there are about 11 other states uh, that, um, where this uh, strategy can be used um, and uh, that would include uh, uh, at least uh, eight other existing old incinerators. Detroit, Annapolis, among those eight other uh, uh, cities that have existing plants. Great. Well, let's plan to come back to that, too, because I want to talk about at the end sort of a big wrap-up with some of the refindings in Marie's report, uh, as well as this, Neil, what is that cities can do. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about why Baltimore took this direction in terms of the incinerator and was hoping, Marie, that you could give us some of like big picture here. In in your report um, about uh, incineration and renewable energy, you talk about three reasons that incinerators in general are a bad deal for communities. And I was hoping that you could just kind of walk us through those reasons so we can understand why it is a community like Baltimore is having such an issue with this particular facility. In this report we released in December uh, late last year, um, we overviewed these three reasons that or that we found in in the literature and in in our reporting about why municipal solid waste incinerators are such a bad deal. Uh, the first being that the economics of these facilities uh, really don't add up. That incinerators are risky investments for the local governments and utilities that are helping support and subsidize them, particularly as energy prices decline and that there um, are these more price competitive alternatives, which we'll get into a little bit more as well. A growing number of these plants are unable to cover their operating costs or the uh, substantial uh, investments needed to really maintain or, or as uh, Neil was talking about, implement new pollution controls. Uh, and so they're costly to operate and maintain to remain competitive. And so we've seen recent examples in California and in Minnesota where existing facilities are not able to offer contracts for electricity at a, a competitive rate. In that case, in California, for example, that helped lead to the closure of uh, one of the state's remaining facilities. Related to this economics point, the tip fees or what waste haulers pay to dispose of waste at, at incinerators are often quite a bit more costly than uh, alternatives. So we see two to three times higher rates uh, at of tip fee disposal than comparable recycling or composting costs, which again, I'm here um, with Neil, our, our expert, so he can 
perhaps touch on some of that too as he gets more into the waste side of the equation. Um, and we also see that uh, jobs, sort of local jobs, which are generated at incinerators are quite a f bit less than uh, other alternatives. So uh, we see four, four times the number of jobs per unit of waste uh, in composting sites, for example. So really there are better alternatives that exist when you look at uh, these plants through an economics lens. Uh, we also see the impacts on uh, public health, and that was a big motivator for, it sounds like, the, the Baltimore case, certainly. Uh, but incinerators are these classic cases of environmental injustice uh, in the communities that they've been located in. They're often cited in neighborhoods that are predominantly made up of people with lower incomes, people of color, uh, as the Energy Justice Network uh, has illustrated in some really great maps that we feature in, in the report. And so Neil has mentioned them. They're, uh, they've done some great work doc documenting, again, the, the harmful, uh, costly, and avoidable public health risks that these incinerators present to, to the local communities that are living nearby. Um, and we also talk a little bit, I think, a little uh, more about that dynamic with partners from EJN, the Energy Justice Network, and then also uh, another great organization, Gaia, uh, who's done a more work in, in a webinar that we hosted on the report uh, in January. So can point folks more to that resource. And then uh, finally, we, uh, especially in looking at this through our energy democracy lens and, and the impacts that incinerators have on the energy sector, we argue the third point being that renewable trash, which these incinerators are often being classified under, is really a legal oxymoron. Uh, it doesn't really make, make sense that burning garbage would be considered a renewable resource, but it is in uh, the majority of uh, states where incinerators are located. Uh, we have 52 plants operating in, in states that do classify uh, trash burning as a renewable source of energy. So these are three reasons that we definitely see communities pushing back against this sturdy practice, and we highlight those three in our report. Marie, thank you. I was wanted to jump back and ask Neil specifically about how some of these large-scale issues apply in the case of Baltimore. Just very quickly, though, is Maryland one of those states that accounts uh, burning trash as renewable energy? Exactly, yes. It is one of those states. In fact, it's the only one in the country uh, that gives uh, garbage incinerator incinerators a Tier 1 status within the uh, renewable portfolios uh, standard system, which uh, allows it to get even more money uh, that we think should be going to wind and solar and truly renewable sources of energy. So, Neil, Maria also talked about the uh, health and, and pollution problems from the incinerators in general being a big issue, um, the energy ju or environmental justice implications. It seems like that's a pretty fair description of what was going on in Baltimore. So I'm just curious, was that true in, in the work that you've done there, that the pollution was having that disproportionate impact on people of color and low-income residents? And is it true as well that the city could save money with other waste processing options? Both are true. Um, the Institute did a report in 2017 uh, detailing the potential uh, cost reductions and, and money savings uh, for the city if it were to transition away from uh, the incinerator. I've been fighting garbage incinerators for over 45 years now, and it's fascinating that uh, people get aroused because of the fear of pollution impacting their health in the environment. Ultimately, it's the economics that moves people to make the decision. In Baltimore, it was a, a healthy combination of both. 
Um, in terms of the pollution, I'll point out that, John, the, uh, you mentioned 50 percent. The, uh, the Bresco incinerator accounts for, about, for exactly 36 percent uh, of the industrial pollution in the city as measured by the U.S. EPA. And uh, these health costs are, um, are very significant. Um, Dante Swinton, uh, an, an organizer for Energy Justice Network in Baltimore, uh, did the numbers, and he estimated that uh, the cost to the city annually, that is the city, the businesses, and the people in the city, is about $153 million a year. Uh, and that uh, is comprised of absentee workers who are sick with asthma and other ailments, uh, school children. Uh, that uh, miss school and also have to go to emergency room for uh, as asthmatic conditions. That's a quite a hefty bill that the uh, government businesses and citizens have to pay. And the uh, stimulus for uh, trying to shut down an existing incinerator came from Curtis Bay, uh, which is a an industrially uh, zoned uh, community at the southern tip of Baltimore, and about. Four years ago, um, the uh, private industry was planning a 4,000-ton-per-day garbage incinerator in the middle of Curtis Bay, which is already the heaviest polluted zip code in Baltimore. And this triggered simmering discontent in the community, which is low-income, mixed uh, uh, white people, black people, Latino people, and Asian people. Um, uh, They they were absolutely fed up when this 4,000-ton-per-day incinerator uh, was announced, the plan for it. And um, through incredibly uh, well-organized citizens uh, led by uh, United Workers, uh, and uh, their staff, who uh, all live in the community and went to Ben Franklin High School, uh, these adults and young people, uh, also adults, but uh, just out of high school and in college, um, came up with incredible tactics, videos, small meetings, uh, many, many small meetings, um, which mobilized the city. Among their best tactics was a video produced by the young people in the community um, that was uh, sent around to the museums, the school systems in the city and the region that had pledged to buy electricity from this planned uh, garbage incinerator. And uh, the video made it clear that this was dirty electricity. And one by one, these institutions withdrew their offers to buy electricity from this source. Um, uh, That was a a major accomplishment, and it led to lawyers and doctors and organizers from other issues on the environment to join uh, United Workers. Uh, Energy Justice Network uh, did a whole lot of work. The Institute, myself and Brenda Platt, did a lot of work. Um, The Institute's work was showing, uh, pointing to specific examples of what government, industry, and citizens have been doing uh, to implement alternative uh, systems uh, that do not have incineration. We supported the Filbert Street Garden, uh, which is a, a community institution in, in Curtis Bay. Uh, we uh, raised money to build a compost pad. That compost pad is now the basis for a collection program in nearby neighborhoods that picks up organic waste from households and businesses, brings them back to the garden for composting and reuse. Uh, the program involves young people and also uh, small children. There's an elementary school right across the street. The children are growing flowers, fruits, vegetables. It's quite an institution. Um, all of this uh, uh, mobilized the community, 
both from the fear of pollution and the possibilities that the 90 acres that was going to be devoted uh, to the incinerator could now become a green industrial park with recycling, composting, uh, solar energy projects. So the, uh, the, the, the community was turned around into what's possible. It energized their mobilization. And after the, the defeat of the planned incinerator in Curtis Bay, there was a seamless uh, transition to focus on the existing incinerator. And of course, environmental justice uh, did a great job in documenting the pollution. I also want to tip my hat to Environmental Justice Network uh, because they also um, went deep into the weeds working with communities surrounding the incinerator who suffer the most from the pollution and uh, raised money and developed a pilot recycling program. Uh, Baltimore has a very low recycling rate. Uh, there are reasons for it. The DPW, the Department of Public Works in the city, just hasn't paid attention uh, to recycling and composting. And the uh, Energy Justice Network pilots showed that citizens with the proper carts, proper information, and proper incentives, uh, they were recycling at 39%. The city's average is anywhere from 14 to 19%, so virtually a doubling of the recycling rate just by paying attention and proving that low-income people, black, white, or green, uh, will recycle and want to recycle. So, Neil, this is terrific. I was just gearing up to ask you the question about how this mobilization happened around the wheelbrader and, and that led to this uh, city policy. And so I appreciate you just jumping right in and talking about that Curtis Bay plant incinerator and the way that the community had rallied around it. We're going to take a quick break here, uh, and we're going to. But when we come back, we're going to talk about how many states are providing subsidies to trash burning through renewable energy definitions, which we touched on before. Uh, I'd like to dive into how industry consolidation is helping the incinerator industry, uh, and then also to talk a little bit more about what we've already heard about is you know what communities can do instead of hosting trash burners in terms of waste processing and things uh, that they can do to create jobs and healthier jobs in their community. Thank you for listening to this episode of Local Energy Rules with ILSR staff Marie Donahue and Neil Seldman joining our host John Farrell. A version of this conversation was released last month as part of the Institute's Building Local Power podcast, featuring topics and stories about how communities can build power locally while challenging concentrated corporate power across our economy. Now stay tuned for more local energy highlights from this episode after a short message from our Energy Democracy Initiative Director, John Farrell. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan, and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, 
back to the program. Okay, before the break, we talked about how Baltimore's incinerator is a classic case of environmental injustice, aided and abetted by state policy that subsidizes trash burning. Marie, can you talk about how common it is that states allow burning of municipal waste to count as renewable energy? You gave us the number before. And is that a subsidy that's keeping incinerators afloat? So we discussed how classifying burning trash as a renewable resource is this oxymoron, how quite a number of states, it's quite common, 23 states currently allow municipal solid waste to be included in these definitions, which is quite unfortunate. And so we've been talking about Baltimore. We already mentioned Maryland's case is particularly striking and unfortunate in that it puts trash incineration on the same plane as solar and and wind, not in all of these other states. Is that always the case? There are some stipulations or, or where incineration is counted under certain conditions, but 23 states have included incineration in their goals Uh, or in some cases, these more strict renewable portfolio standards. Uh, This designation allows incinerators to benefit from the support of renewable energy credits in states, uh, both within states where they might be getting uh, credits toward their uh, electricity production, and then also has implications for out-of-state credits that cities, utilities may be buying to offset other sources of energy. And we see that in Maryland as well. Uh, we cite a report showing that in Maryland, for example, ratepayers reportedly spent $84 million over the last decade to purchase these unbundled out-of-state renewable energy credits from Virginia, which is another state that classifies incineration as a renewable resource, and that these credits were from, a majority of these credits are from dirty energy sources. So again, these are sort of indicative of uh, how how this industry is funded and supported by these renewable credits and that designation. It allows the power that's generated by facilities. Neil mentioned this a little bit, just about how utilities, how these companies are able to market the energy as this renewable, attractive resource. Uh, And so from at least a marketing perspective, um, in wholesale electricity contracts with utilities, cities, or others, these power purchasers can tout that sort of green nature and and that greenwashing is uh, really quite pervasive in the industry. It's uh, been used and certainly they've changed the wording, Neil knows this history better than me, but that they've changed the, the wording to allow it to be more uh, attractive and sound like it's a better source of energy than it than it is brushing aside the, the public health impacts and some of these other negative impacts that we discussed earlier. That said, on the flip side of what state definitions and policies are, there are examples that we found uh, in Rhode Island, for example, of, of clear uh, bans on municipal solid waste incinerators or ones that that are keeping this explicitly out of their renewable energy goals and definitions. Uh, so that's sort of a positive, small positive story, even though that's a f- uh, rare occurrence in these these states we looked at. In some cases, it's just not mentioned at all. It sounds like that could be a potential opportunity then in how states can address this. Not only you know, does a state like Maryland need to remove municipal solid waste from its definition of renewable energy, but it's important to also include some sort of language that says you can't buy dirty energy from out of state and counted as renewable here. That if if it comes from an incinerator in Virginia or Ohio, that when it's purchased in Maryland, uh, it can't be counted as renewable. Exactly. Yeah, I think that is a clear opportunity. And we do, I think, call that out in, in the report. Neil, I wanted to jump back to this bigger picture around incinerators. You mentioned before that ILSR has worked on helping to stop incinerators, dozens of them across the country. 
um, you know, when folks who are building incinerators hear the name Neil Seldman, uh, a fear is stricken in their heart about the fact that they were going to be able to build that incinerator. Um, you know, there have been hundreds on the drawing board, including that one in Curtis Bay that really triggered the action in Baltimore. Who is it that's trying to build trash burners? And, you know, can you tell us about how consolidation in the waste disposal industry is playing in a role in the push to develop more of these large facilities? You're quite correct. Uh, since the Institute was uh, founded in 1974, we've been involved in over 50 of these battles. Uh, we won all of them except for four. The point is that over 400 have been stopped since the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and going into the 2000s. Uh, there's only one that has been built uh, in 19, uh, since 1996, um, and that was in West Palm Beach, Florida. That's an a story unto itself, and none has been built since then. To be frank, uh, the citizens and small businesses, um, there's a playbook on how to kill incinerators, and you could read the playbook and organize your community, and uh, it's more than 50-50, much more than 50-50, that citizen, organized citizens will be able to stop it. The consolidation of the uh, uh, solid waste industry is, is a critical component of this. Um, the first consolidation uh, started in the uh, late 60s, early 70s over buying out haulers and consolidating haulers and creating a virtual monopoly on hauling. Uh, at the same time, a virtual monopoly on landfill capacity was developed by these companies. When it comes to incinerators, uh, it was just another form of the consolidators taking control and putting in systems that favored them, not the citizens or the environment. But as I indicated, that effort was stopped cold. And the effort uh, by the waste hauling companies uh, to, to add incineration uh, a monopoly to their landfill monopoly w was shut down. There are remnants of those uh, facilities that were built in the 70s and 80s, such as in Baltimore, such as in um, uh, Montgomery County. Actually, Montgomery County uh, was built in, in the 90s. Citizens have been fighting existing plans for 20, 30 years. Um, the prospect of citizens winning in battles against existing incinerators is now improving tremendously. And I think the Baltimore experience is certainly going to help citizens in Detroit, Indianapolis, um, uh, Newark, New Jersey, uh, and many other cities that still have these incinerators. There are about 50 remaining, 50 to 55 garbage incinerators remaining in the state. Uh, that's down from over 100 uh, a couple of decades ago. The other important thing, as I said earlier, environmental concerns, people breathing air that has mercury and lead and dioxin, known killers, as well as oxides of nitrogen, which are not killers but certainly impact health, gets people's uh, attention. Um, but it's very important for, in, uh, for anyone fighting these plants to have a sense of what's possible. And happily, the recycling movement across the country since the late 60s has shown what can happen. That's both grassroots recyclers and small business recyclers. And that confidence uh, and that merging of pro-recycling and anti-incineration movements uh, has really uh, made a tremendous difference. And uh, the transition uh, away from these incinerators, it can't be done overnight, but it certainly can be done within a two to three year period. And it's relatively simple. The transition is based on, uh, on 
best practices. Uh, uh, composting, which comprises about 30 to 40 percent of the waste stream, um, is a very easy alternative uh, uh, to incineration uh, and landfill. Uh, the big waste hauling companies fight composting because it take, has the potential to take away 30 to 40 percent of their market uh, into a distributed system that's based on local markets and local small businesses. Um, the other part uh, that we recommend, it's not essential, Composting is essential. A very helpful tool, uh, which I sometimes refer to as a magic bullet, uh, if there is anything to get people to recycle, is unit pricing or charging people uh, by the amount of garbage they set out for collection with um, composting setouts and recycling setouts either free or much, much less expensive for households to put out. This creates an immediate uh, incentive for households to pay attention to their waste. In fact, we have documented cases through original research as well as other research, other organizational research, that shows that when you put in unit pricing within a year to a year and a half, your overall solid waste uh, stream goes down by 40%. That's a combination of people getting involved in recycling, composting, and source reduction, meaning people don't buy packaging that they're going to bring into their house and then have to pay to get collected in their curbside system. The other thing about uh, unit pricing, also called pay-as-you-throw, save-as-you-throw, smart, uh, save money, reduce trash, is that um, it can help civilize uh, American uh, culture. Uh, The United States, uh, people in the United States generate four and a half pounds of garbage a day. It's the most of any country by far in the world. Um, It breaks out to about three to three and a half uh, pounds per day when you take out the amount of recycling we're doing. You were talking about civilizing America, Neil, and so I hope that you had a a solution to um, political polarization in this. Uh, uh, No, I don't, although I must say that uh, recycling is not a partisan issue. It's a, uh, an incumbent issue uh, because incumbents, uh, for many reasons, like big bond issues, which is what your incinerators give you for financial patronage and all kinds of things uh, that go on in our political system. But what I meant is that the United States is a pariah in the world because we generate so much waste, three or four times what most uh, countries generate. And using a... Uh, certain type of unit pricing system, the bag system, which allows you to collect organics, um, used products, uh, textiles, etc. in your curbside recycling program, allows cities to get their per capita waste generation down to less than one pound per person. And that's revolutionary. And it would mean that the United States finally, or people in the United States are finally taking responsibility uh, for the uh, profligate uh, lifestyles we're living, uh, which are generating all this waste. And we can have just as good a lifestyle without all this waste as is being proved by unit pricing systems. There's one other and and last major area that cities need to uh, pay attention to, And that's the economic development side of recycling. As you recover materials from the waste stream and process them, you add value to them, meaning jobs and uh, and better, uh, higher market prices. And then if you use that material in your region or in your city uh, to to manufacture new products, you get another wave of economic stimulation. This is what the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is. Uh, Cities control uh, this material. Why not use it and create uh, a local economy? 
and the um, the job creation, as as Marie mentioned, is is very important. And f to accomplish all this, cities need to designate industrial sites, whether they're continuous or not, as uh, some people call them resource recovery parks. Some people call them ecological industrial parks. In California, where these types of recycling uh, parks were were created about 20 years ago, they're called recycling market development zones. There are at least 30 of them throughout the state in rural and urban areas, and they give uh, economic benefits, tax breaks, uh, marketing assistance um, to companies that locate in these parks and use uh, the recovered materials from cities to create new jobs. There are over 100 companies that have located in California, creating thousands of jobs, all because there are available industrial spaces specifically for companies that uh, recycle, compost, and reuse old products. As usual, you've anticipated my question and offered a lot of things that cities can do. Uh, the pay-as-you-throw policy, creating these uh, resource recovery uh, locations. Uh, Marie, I was hoping that you could get a last word, too, about you know maybe one recommendation from the report writ large that uh, either states or cities can do around incineration. And then just warning both of you that, as is our tradition, we like to ask for a reading recommendation uh, in the end of the conversation. So, Marie, uh, tell us something that from the report that communities uh, can pursue that can help them address this problem with incinerators uh, around renewable energy. Sure. So I think uh, energy is, a, as we mentioned, a component of this incineration dilemma, perhaps. And, and cities that are looking for alternatives certainly have more economical, cleaner sources available to them. Uh, we recommend that local governments look into ways of investing in solar energy on municipal properties, for example, with savings they might make from transitioning the high costs of waste hauling that they would need to, to dump at incinerators over, over to investing in municipal solar sort of pilot projects. Um, and community solar is another great example of really empowering communities that might be near this near existing incinerators uh, with, with cleaner sources of energy to renters, to others that have not had access to uh, rooftop solar. So I guess I gave two answers, but um, both of those things can be enabled by state policies as well. Um, so hopefully states make more progressive policies in the future. And I'll plug our community power scorecard that gives uh, more of the, the state policies that are better than classifying waste incineration as renewable energy uh, for folks that want to learn more. So I'll make a note before I ask Neil for his reading recommendation that all of the reports or other resources that were discussed in this will be available on the show page. We'll link to them, the Community Power Scorecard, ILSR's research uh, in Baltimore, uh, the playbook on stopping incinerators. Uh, but Neil, do you have something that you've been reading recently you'd recommend to our listeners? Well, I, I've read them when they came out, but there are two terrific books for people. Uh, Paul Connett, C-O-N-N-E-T-T, -T, Zero Waste, Saving the World, One Community at a Time, uh, really emphasizes the link between organizations such as the Institute and community groups. Uh, we have to work together. The, I mentioned that the Institute had all these victories. They certainly weren't the Institutes alone. Um, we, uh, we couldn't get to lunch without local partners in all our cities. Another excellent book is Plastic Ocean by Charles um, 
Moore, Captain Charles Moore, which deals with the plastic dilemma. The other thing I would suggest, and, and uh, John already mentioned it, if you go to the Waste to Wealth uh, blog page, uh, we cover these issues of monopoly, single stream, uh, the issue of China, which is important, and citizens can get a very good background uh, just uh, checking out our blog page at uh, Waste to Wealth at ILSR.org. Thanks, Dale. Marie, what, what would you recommend? book I'm reading now is uh, called Emergent Strategy. I'm not through with it, but it's by Adrienne Marie Brown, who's a Detroit organizer and uh, wears a number of other titles. But I, I love this kind of quote about what that concept means about how we intentionally change ways that grow our capacity to embody the just and liberated worlds we long for. And I think learning lessons from anti-incinerator activists and, and other grassroots folks is just really inspiring to me. So looking forward to finishing that book. Let me just say there's another great book that just came out uh, by our very good friend Beth Porter at Green America. It's called Reduce, Reuse, Reimagine. And uh, she introduced a great concept, perfect for Baltimore, which has a low recycling rate. Recycling is like an acorn. If you plant it and nurture it, it will become a giant tree of economic, social, and uh, environmental benefits. And thank you for your time. Thanks for sticking <laughs> that in. Uh, Neil and Marie, thank you both. And all of those book recommendations, we'll have some links to them uh, to where you can purchase them from your local independent bookseller. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Local Energy Rules, where our host John Farrell was speaking with colleagues Marie Donahue and Neil Seldman about the issue of waste incineration and how communities can take action to support cleaner, more economical waste and energy alternatives. For more information about the intersection of waste and energy, we encourage you to dive into ILSR's recent report, Waste Incineration, A Dirty Secret in How States Define Renewable Energy, and coverage of the Baltimore Clean Air Act, available from the Institute's Energy Democracy and Waste to Wealth Initiatives at ILSR.org. While you're on our website, we encourage you to explore ILSR's interactive Community Power Toolkit and Community Power Map to learn more about policies and programs that are enabling a local clean energy future. You can also find more than 70 past episodes of the Local Energy Rules podcast. Sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on social media. Tune back into Local Energy Rules now every two weeks to hear more powerful stories of communities taking on concentrated power to transform the energy system. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.